This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Today, uh, we deal with the breakup of the medieval church state order, which means it's the breakup of what was called Christianitas or Christendom. And it forever changes, uh, forever, you know, up to now anyway, has changed um, Christianity and uh, Western culture and Western civilization. So let's take a look at that. Um, and I'm going to take you through first um, some interpretations of the meaning of what happened, and then some of the details of what actually happened. Why, why this title? Why returning to Constantine, Protestant theocracies? Uh, well, actually, you know, it's, it would probably be more correct to say returning to Theodosius rather than Constantine, but Constantine begins the uh, symbiosis between the Christian church and the Roman empire. Uh, and it became uh, in, in many places, uh, a complete symbiosis, total reliance of the church and the state on each other. And it breaks up, but the Protestants establish uh, in many ways, a closer relationship between church and state than had existed before. That's why Protestant theocracies. And this is a Catholic image, of course, Catholic propaganda. These are the uh, Protestant reformers trying to destroy the Catholic Church uh, unsuccessfully, but you see that they're uh, being aided by the devil and um, they're trying to, to you know, they've got chains wrapped around the, the four towers there, uh, which are the, the four great fathers of the West, St. Gregory, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, and St. Jerome, but they are not succeeding. This is Luther, and his associates is what the little blurb says on the lower left-hand corner, but they're all failing. But what happened and how did we get here? Uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with these um, types of, of church signs, which you find mostly in uh, Protestant churches. But I took a look at the uh, church directory in New Haven and I found uh, some interesting patterns. And you know, New Haven's not a big city. It's about 125,000 people. Uh, and then the suburbs uh, make it all about 250,000. But uh, how did we get here? And what difference does it make whether one knows it or not? Uh, this is just a sampling of what you find in the New Haven phone directory. All these um, Church of Christ, Church of God in Christ, Holy Trinity Church of God. Then you've got deliverance churches with all these different names. Uh, one of them has vanished from the, from the phone book. There used to be one that was the true deliverance church. Holiness churches. And then a sampling of other, and it goes on and on, but how did we get there? Well, here's an interesting moment. This had already started. This is 8, 8 August, 1535 in Geneva. 
uh, a group of teenagers goes into the cathedral and begins destroying all the images and turns into a huge iconoclastic riot. But here's something that those teenagers, uh, young men as they're called in one document, uh, they realized that there was a connection between the symbolic dimension of Catholicism and the authority of the church. And more specifically, the connection between images and the Catholic clergy. And as they broke up images, they picked up pieces and threw them at people on the street or out in the square in front of the cathedral. This image is not from Geneva. This image is actually from another Swiss city. But uh, what they said, according to one uh, chronicle, what they said is they threw pieces of the demolished images at passersby was, here we have the gods of the priests. Would you like some? And then they'd throw something at you. So they knew that the images had something to do with the priests. And so much of the Protestant Reformation is about redefining the clergy, redefining the church, redefining everything in the church. But um, all of this destruction of images, we have actually uh, seen something of it uh, very recently in our own day and age. These are images uh, damaged by Protestants. Notice how they, they especially like to go for the face of the image. Um, but we've seen it, deja vu, in 2021. The, the power of demolishing a symbol is something that, that, you know, it applies to religion, yes, of course, but it also applies to culture in general and history. This is how you rewrite the past. This is how you begin a new present, a new future, is by demolishing the symbols of what has been a culture who, that took the wrong turn as the iconoclasts see it. But what happened in the 16th century? Uh, what is this uh, transition to modernity? Uh, the Protestant Reformation has to be understood as part of a, a larger pattern. There were other things happening that uh, were earth shaking and brought about long-lasting changes in the world and in world views. Uh, there were changes in ideas and beliefs and thinking, feeling, behavior. There were changes in structures, social, political, and economic. And there were also changes in culture, religion, art, literature. They were all changing at the time. But the Protestant Reformation takes some of the changes and takes them in its own direction, right? So we're facing a reconstruction of society, sometimes from top to bottom. And uh, here is the Protestant equivalent of that first image that you saw. Um, this is the candle of truth. There are many versions of this illustration. There you have all of the Protestant reformers gathered around the table. And Luther's always at the center. And there's the candle of truth. And who is trying to blow it out? 
a cardinal, a demon, the Pope, and a monk, right? Trying to blow out the candle of truth. They, have, they are finally, after, you know, centuries of darkness, revealing the truth. So just as the Catholic Reformation has many names, uh, so uh, does the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Reformation, reformers with a capital R, but from the Catholic perspective, of course, it's a revolt, schism, it's heresy. And um, there are multiple reformations, even within the Protestant Reformation, you have to use the plural. Another name for this period is the early modern age. And I have always asked myself, uh, and asked it in public too, why isn't it called post-medieval? <laughs> Could very easily be called post-medieval, but no, there's something that drives uh, everyone towards this, uh, away from post-medieval, because it seems like a continuation of medieval, and what is often emphasized is the radical break from the Middle Ages, which was not in many respects. Yes, it was a radical break, but there are many, many continuities. And othering is an essential part of this process of this transition. Uh, and here's a, an image of Protestant identity and self-definition, a Lutheran one, right? And this is a contrast between true religion of Christ and the false idolatrous teaching of the Antichrist from 1546 by Lucas Cranach the Younger. On the left-hand side, you have Luther, the true church. On the right-hand side, you have the Catholic church, the false church, and everything that's wrong with it. But notice in Luther's true church, what, what uh, Cranach is depicting is Luther preaching from the Bible in a pulpit, and the preaching links him to the Lamb of God, Christ, God the Father, and he has the Holy Spirit hovering over him. And then you see the two sacraments that Luther kept, baptism and the Eucharist. And in the Eucharist, uh, the faithful are receiving both the bread and the wine. But directly under Luther's um, lectern there is uh, you see his prince John Frederick of Saxony carrying the cross but what's this linking of church and state all about well at that moment when Cranach uh, did this woodcut John Frederick was in prison he had just lost a battle to Charles the fifth holy Roman emperor and he was in prison so this is depicting Luther's prince as a martyr. Let this soak in. On the right-hand side, everything is wrong. Absolutely everything. But look how many clergy are being represented there. It's like Catholicism is overrun with clergy. There, there are actually more clergy in that image than lay people. And here's uh, an Anglican uh, self-definition of identity. Notice this is the history of the Reformation of the Church of England. Uh, I think it's a 19th century uh, cover. But notice King Henry VIII has at his feet the papal tiara and its supremacy, which has been toppled. 
And um, under Cranmer's uh, feet, you've got the Pope's decrees. He has just ripped up that decree. And superstition is being demolished while religion is being built. So there's that stark contrast in case you don't get the message. They'll, they'll, they'll depict it for you. And you saw this image uh, last time. I thought I would uh, point out to you those spots where you see from the Catholic side, uh, the, the angel is ripping up Zwingli's book and the tome under the figure of heresy has Luther on the, on the spine. So what about the interpretation of this? These were Western traits once attributed to the Protestant Reformation. Protestants, of course, came up with this. Liberty and sanctity of conscience, individualism, rejection of autocracy, democracy, toleration and freedom of expression, the rise of empirical science even is, is uh, the Protestant Reformation got credited for, with that. And the triumph of reason over superstition. If the Protestant Reformation had not happened, so said this view of history, uh, then we wouldn't have these things. Um, but all of these claims are being uh, challenged now. They began to be challenged in the 20th century. And in the 21st century, the challenge has deepened as animosity towards traditional Western values and historiography increases, especially. Uh, and ironically, these are Westerners, uh, which is, this is one of the reasons that you can hardly ever find a job description, a job opening in Reformation. Maybe a seminary might advertise it that way, but I can't remember the last time I saw a job opening listed for Reformation. And this is why the entire period is being tossed out by college after college and university after university. Last year, um, you could count the openings for positions in early modern European history with one hand, the five fingers on one hand. That's how few there were. And it's happening very quickly and very drastically. The value of Western history and Western perspectives increasingly uh, rejected. Uh, once before, however, uh, these were deeply embedded and prevalent. But the secularization of Western culture that led to this state of affairs, some say, can be attributed to the reformations of the 16th and 17th century. No one can claim to understand the West or its values without first understanding those reformations. But now, since they are increasingly uh, being viewed as something really bad, um, the perspective is changing. And um, Karl Marx, of course, uh, for him, class struggle defines human existence and determines history. For him and for Marxists, uh, Reformation was all about class struggle. It was the early bourgeois revolution. And its most important event was the Germans' peasants' revolt of 1524-25, which Luther betrayed and which the German princes smothered with, quote unquote, the opium of religion. 
the only interpretation of the Reformation allowed in the Soviet Union and its colonies, as well as in all self-avowed Marxist nations worldwide, is this. It's all about class struggle. And we'll get back to those two five mark notes from East Germany. That's a, that's a, that's a capital R reformer on the bill. 19th century and early 20th century, Max Weber came up with a sociological approach to reformation that emphasized the role of ideas in generating social structures. And he pinned the development of capitalism on the Calvinist belief in predestination. And this is still, uh, I mean, this has been over 100 years, and this is still uh, generating lively debate whether he was correct or not. Um, in the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism from 1905, this is still a live wire. And he also, um, defined Protestantism as an agent of modernity and materialism because of its disenchantment of the world. German word entzauberung does not really mean disenchantment. English is a little soft. The German word for magic is zauber. And um, his mother was a Calvinist. And he was basically repeating something that uh, emerged from 16th century Protestantism, which was the idea that all of Catholic ritual was really demonic magic, zauber. Uh, so as he sees it, Protestants disenchanted or demagified the world. I mentioned him yesterday, Jean Delumeau, a French historian, social historian, who approaches early modernity as quote unquote Christianization a partnership between church and state to wipe out the remaining traces of paganism and popular piety and culture. And he says Protestants and Catholics were doing the same thing. They're just going about it differently. They were trying to get rid of paganism because he thinks Europe was never fully Christianized until the 16th century. It's very odd and very widely accepted revival of a very old Protestant view of the Reformation that in fact, the Catholic church, the medieval Catholic church had never fully abandoned paganism. So uh, take that into account. Another uh, social historian, also cultural historian, John Bossy, he views it from a slightly different perspective. He says the transition to modernity was a shift from a communal mode of existing to individualism focused on the self. So, the Reformations, plural, of the early modern age were different manifestations of this seismic shift towards the individual. Philosopher Charles Taylor in his um, Secular Age, 2007, traces the intellectual roots of secularism back to the Protestant Reformation attributing the central features of present-day secularism to Protestant thought. It's a marvelous book, um, highly recommended. And Taylor is Catholic, by the way. Another Catholic historian, um, my friend, Brad Gregory at Notre Dame, his unintended reformation, 
how a religious revolution secularized society is another blast against this kind of Weberian um, notion of Protestantism ushering in a better history for the West. He argues that by causing the irreversible fracturing of medieval Christendom, Protestants inadvertently caused the rise of relativism and secularism, which are the root cause of today's worst problems. And now um, um, Gregory, Brad Gregory is moving on. His next book is going to tie all this to the um, ecological disaster we're all facing on the horizon. So he moves on, redefining the period. But it, it can be bewildering how many branches uh, uh, one can find in the, the, the breakup of medieval Catholicism. And here's one attempt at this, which actually left out two early schisms, the Nestorian schism and the Monophysite schism, which I inserted in there. But this is, this is a simplified version of this. <laughs> So if you want to trace all of these, oh, you will find uh, plenty of humorous mistakes on this chart too. Anyway, this is what happened. Look what happened to the map of Western Europe, to, to Christendom, the Christianitas. It breaks up into competing uh, churches. And in many places, actually, you know, I, I, I take issue with this map, the way they've done France, for instance. Um, yeah, there were plenty of Protestants in France, but they weren't all in that little southwestern region of France. Basically, only two present day nation states in Western Europe were able to resist the Protestant Reformation. Italy, which was composed of various states, and Iberia, which was at that time composed only of two states, Spain and Portugal. Ireland resisted, resisted mightily. And as you see the north of Scotland too, there was resistance. Actually, there was resistance to the change everywhere. There's a lot of work, for instance, that could be done on resistance to the Lutheran church in Scandinavia. There's plenty of evidence of it, but there's been very, very little work done on it. Just as there was plenty of resistance to the Protestantizing of England, uh, but there's a lot more literature on this. The change did not happen as quickly as was once assumed, at least at street level among the people. So ecclesiology, Protestant ecclesiology, four main branches, Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican, Radical. There's plenty of diversity but there's also plenty of inequity and exclusion. And, and something you might have already noticed is that polity or the way that the church is organized can be very central to the identity of certain Protestant churches. Episcopal, yes, they have bishops. Presbyterian, yes, they have elders. Congregational, well, the, the, each congregation runs itself. Or uh, they define themselves by some salient characteristic, Reformed, Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, Evangelical, the list goes on. Or some of them carry their founder's name, Lutheran, Mennonite, Hutterite, even Swedenborgian, um, and the list goes on. 
all of them sought to reform according to their interpretation of the New Testament church. That was the model they were trying to recapture. They all agreed on one item, no pope. On that, they could agree. On everything else, there was plenty of disagreement. But they sort of agreed on two other items, that you should not have a priesthood. Instead, what you have is a ministry. Uh, more about this uh, soon enough. And um, they also tended to agree that there were not seven sacraments, but only two. But this business of not having a priesthood uh, is, is key. And not having a pope, of course, that is absolutely essential. Three out of these four branches chose what I call the Constantinian model of a church-state symbiosis. Uh, those are the Lutheran, Reformed, and Anglican churches. On other points, plenty of disagreement, too many to cover here. How does this begin? Everybody knows this. Martin Luther on Halloween, 1517 posts uh, 95 theses on the issue of indulgences. So where does the ecclesiological change come in? He actually begins his revolt on the issue of soteriology, salvation, salvation by faith alone, grace alone, and one being simultaneously sinful and justified. From soteriology, he expands quickly to issues of authority. Who's got ultimate authority? Bible, Bible alone, sola scriptura. And then to ecclesiology. The church has fallen and the Pope is the antichrist, which no surprise, he ends up being excommunicated in 1519. It's an Augustinian monk, but I hope you see the transition there in the woodcut of the image of Luther as a, as a monk, the Luther as a prophet, uh, a monk inspired by the Holy Spirit. In 1520, Luther writes three key treatises. First, the Babylonian captivity of the church, which is all about ecclesiology and sacramentology. Church has been captured by the devil and the Antichrist. The only authority is the Bible. And uh, there are only two sacraments mentioned in the Bible. So therefore there should only be two sacraments. Second one is his address to the nobility of the German nation where he proposed, and this is on biblical grounds, that if the church can't reform itself, it is the divinely appointed duty of the secular rulers to do the reforming. So he sets up a church-state symbiosis. And the third treatise on Christian freedom is all about soteriology, salvation by faith alone, not by works. Predestination is implicit, but he never ever explicitly develops a theology of predestination. Key point here, purgatory is abolished along with intercession for the dead or the intercession of the saints. At the Diet of Worms, 
1521, he has declared an outlaw of the empire, which means that anyone can kill him with impunity. But he is rescued uh, from a certain death by his Saxon prince, Frederick the Wise. Talk about you know, church-state symbiosis. If it weren't for Frederick the Wise, Luther would not have survived 1521. What are the effects of this theology? Remember that Cranach uh, image, the true and false church. This is Luther's definition of the true church. What is the true church? What is its, its most visible sign? Where the gospel is purely preached and the sacraments properly administered. Notice it has nothing to do with the clerical hierarchy or apostolic succession. This is very, very significant turning point. So where is this true church? Well, it's in Saxony and in other locations that agree with him. And who leads this church? Clergy in cooperation with secular authorities. The priesthood is replaced by ministry, which is an office, German word amt. It's not an ontological change in the person. Ordination does not change the person. The person is simply assuming an office, which is in no way uh, different from the profession of a shoemaker or a scribe or any craftsman. It's just a profession. And ministers are replaceable if they don't do their job properly. Clergy don't have the power to forgive sins. Only Christ has that power. And not only that, clergy should marry. If you don't marry, there's something wrong with you. And they're subservient to secular rulers. They can be dismissed and tried in civil courts if they've misbehaved. Here's another important change. I, it's not on the, I have not uh, written it into the slide, but... Um, Medieval clergy could not be tried in civil courts, Catholic church. They had to be tried in church courts. One big change the Protestant Reformation brings about is that clergy are citizens like everyone else. And if they commit crimes, they can be tried in civil courts because they're men like every other man in town. And once again, I mentioned this yesterday, poor relief is through state tax rather than through the church, through church charity or uh, confraternities. What does Luther do with ritual and symbol? Well, he keeps a lot of Catholic elements, but the liturgy now is conducted in the local language rather than Latin. And then there's, um, this, these are terms that uh, came up in the 1980s and are still being used, confessionalization and social disciplining. This is the process of turning Europeans into good Christians by Protestants and Catholics too. The reform ordered by civil powers takes effect. And then in the Lutheran church, it is the state that conducts periodic visitations of churches, right? And they try to find out if the church is making any difference. Also this principle which goes into effect in the Holy Roman Empire. Cuius regio eius religio, 
religion belongs to the ruler. Whatever religion the ruler has, that's the religion all his people have to have. The same goes for imperial free cities. If the city council votes to go Protestant, then everyone in town has to go Protestant, right? And it is the combination of church state that exclude and punish. Now, does the behavior of the people improve as Jean Delumeau um, kept asking? Does it improve? Well, there, there are some books that have come out that are based on the visitations. And of course the visitations find all sorts of problems. So some historians began to ask the unaskable question, was the Protestant Reformation a failure? Uh, and uh, Gerald Strauss being one of these historians, um, that's the wrong question to ask uh, because people's behavior never changes overnight if it changes at all. And Luther had many enemies within his associates, especially this man, Thomas Münzer, who is the one uh, pictured in the German five mark note. He ended up joining the peasants rebellion, but he had nothing but uh, anger towards Luther. Uh, and this treatise of his highly provoked defense an answer to the spiritless soft living flesh at Wittenberg who has most lamentably befouled pitiable Christianity in a perverted way by his theft of Holy Scripture says it all. But that's not all. Luther is a very angry man. And uh, actually in his texts, he would never use Luther's name. Instead, he insulted him constantly with all of these epithets. Um, your flesh is like that of an ass. And you have to be cooked slowly. You're totally incapable of shame. Ah, he makes a mockery and useless babble out of the divine word. Um, and then he refers to all the theology faculty at Wittenberg as the donkey fart doctors of theology and speaks of them as scrotum-like theologians. You know, this is 16th century religion at work. This is what happens, this breakup. It's, it's just intense and it's amazing because the printing press has been invented and you can vent your spleen like this. It's like, you know, like people do now on social media. You can vent your spleen and somebody will print it and somebody will buy it. And the church keeps fragmenting into ever smaller bits and pieces unless the secular rulers step in and prevent this splintering from taking place. And uh, Münzer got placed on the five mark note in East Germany because he's the only real reformer because he joined the peasants revolt. And here's a nice quote from uh, Thomas Münzer, which fits in with East Germany and the whole Soviet empire. The godless have no right to life except that which the elect decide to grant them. Rejoice you true friends of God, the enemies of the cross have crapped their courage into their pants. Yeah, there you go. That's a uh, Same time as Luther, they're almost exactly the same age. Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland, uh, he begins a different reformation in Zurich in 1519. And um, he adheres to the Bible alone or Sola Scriptura also, but very differently from Luther. For instance, the second commandment, thou shalt have no graven images. He takes that literally. 
But when it comes to the Eucharist, this is my body. He will not take that literally, whereas Luther does. But it's a very different sort of reform. It begins with a sausage eating fest on Ash Wednesday of 1522. They break the law. And then it's actually has to go to court this case that we break any law by eating sausages during Lent. And then they start, uh, individuals take it into their own hands to destroy religious images. And between 1523 and 24, there are a series of disputations, public disputations held to decide whether uh, images should be abolished along with the mass uh, because the Catholic Eucharist is also an idol as Zwingli sees it. Um, and it's very democratic. And in, in this respect, the city council votes on who won the disputations, the Catholic clergy or Zwingli and his clergy. And of course, uh, Zwingli's clergy uh, convinced the city council the city should go Protestant and it goes Protestant. Soteriology is a secondary issue um, for Zwingli. And um, Swiss democracy shapes Zwingli's ecclesiology. Uh, Zurich is often called a theocracy, where the clergy and magistrates seek to reform piety and behavior simultaneously. As Zwingli is the father of what comes to be known as reformed Protestantism. Why reform? This is a term they use themselves. They were reformed. Luther was not. So it's church state that exclude and punish and poor relief also tax. But they have a very strong missionary spirit and activity which leads to conflict within the Swiss Confederation in South Germany. And um, the Swiss Confederation actually sinks into civil war and Zwingli dies in battle. And there you see beneath his image, his helmet and his sword with which he went to battle. There you have a Protestant minister, right? A preacher of the word who puts on a helmet and a sword to go battle those Southern Swiss cantons that don't want him sending any missionaries. And Reformed Protestantism spreads very widely. And there's a bird's eye view <coughs> showing you the places where it took root most intensely. And this to me says it all. These are Zwingli's chalices before and after Easter Sunday, 1525. Uh, obviously they kept the old one, or else we wouldn't have a photograph of it. But notice, notice the change. That just says it all. The bread and the wine are not the body and blood of Christ. They point to it. They're symbols. Uh, as I read in one, one treatise, um, it's like a, one of those signs on the road that has a hand with a finger pointing in a certain direction. That's what the Eucharist is. It points to Christ, but it is not Christ. So what happens, um, you know, church and politics. By 1529, it looks like Emperor Charles V is going to get enough armies together to crush all the Protestants. So this prince, 
Philip of Hesse gets all the Protestant reformers, all their leaders together to see if they will form a single church and a military alliance, especially the Swiss who are you know, such good fighters. And he gets them all in a room and they agree on 13 points, but they cannot agree on the Eucharist. They just can't. And Zwingli and Luther go back and forth at each other at this Marburg colloquy. Uh, what does is mean? Uh, Luther says, is means is. Zwingli says, no, it means signifies. And very interesting point in the discussion. Zwingli starts to quote the Greek text of the New Testament about what Jesus says at the Last Supper. And Luther yells at him and says, no, 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 no Greek here, no Greek, Latin. What does that mean? Well, I think it's pretty easy to figure out what's going on there. Luther, who has been a priest now uh, since his mid-20s, he's been saying hocus corpus meum at the altar all these years. That is what the Eucharist is. It's, it's not then, therefore, the wording of the Bible in the original Greek. It's the ritual liturgical hoc est corpus meum that he's focusing on. And the two can't agree, and there's no military alliance and no single church from that point forward. Hocus corpus meum, yeah. Reformed tradition continues with Calvin, he's second generation, a French refugee, same theology as Wingley for the most part, but he elaborates on predestination and other issues so well in his Institutes of the Christian Religion that he becomes a formidable presence and actually eclipses Zwingli. He wrote four different versions, four editions between 1536 and 1559. And he ended up in Geneva by chance, but here's the deal. He's a French refugee fleeing persecution in France. Um, where there's a growing number of reformed Protestants growing, known as Huguenots. In Geneva, he sets up a Zwingli-style theocracy where thought, piety, and behavior are controlled by a court known as the consistory. And it's just assumed that the church has to transform society with this church-state symbiosis. And here's an interesting figure. Before Geneva became Protestant, 1535-36, there were 300 Catholic clergy, but they're replaced only by a handful, at first only seven, then 13. But those few clergy have more control over the people of Geneva than the 300 Catholic clergy ever did. And at church and state exclude and punish, and poor relief is a tax. What's this consistory? It's a tribunal for theological, verbal, and moral correctness. Equity and social justice too, and exclusion for sure. It's a mix of elders, clergy, city councilors, and informants who keep an eye on everyone. Here the case is tried, blasphemy. Heresy, idolatry, adultery, fornication, gambling, dancing, stupid names. There's a law detailing which names you can give your children. Disrespectful behavior towards authorities and lax church and sermon attendance. 
Imagine this, in, in, at St. Peter's in Geneva, they still have them there against the wall, these long poles that um, ushers, uh, if they caught anybody nodding off during the sermon or any other part of the service, they'd poke them with this long pole to wake them up. I think uh, Catholic churches might want to institute that at some point, at least in some parishes. Anyway, punishments vary from admonishment to excommunication, incarceration on a diet of bread and water, banishment, even execution. Here you go. Um, these were morally incorrect feminine fashions. That would bring you to the consistory. Morally incorrect masculine fashion. Those bring you to the consistory. And Calvin, now internationally, outside of Geneva, why is he so important? Why is the reformed Protestant vision of the church and the church-state symbiosis so important in Western history? Basically, it has to do with this. If you're a minority, a Protestant minority, what can you do if your ruler insists that you can't be Protestant? Can you fake being a Catholic to escape certain death? Calvin says no. But there are plenty of Protestants who end up being called Nicodemites who say that uh, faking your religion is essential and it's perfectly fine. But this is not just a personal issue, it's an ecclesiological, ecclesiological issue and also political, because Calvin says, basically, you only have two choices. You either suffer martyrdom or you flee, you become a refugee. But many Protestants cannot choose either way. But Calvin insists there's no dissembling, only those two choices. So not Calvin himself, but other Calvinists begin to develop resistance theories, which culminate in John Knox in Scotland, who argues that resistance to an idolatrous ruler is not only allowed, but is actually demanded by God. So an English Catholic writer called Calvin the grand master of sedition for this reason, because Calvin insisted you have to set up a true church. You can't have a Catholic church, and then some kind of secret evangelical reformed church. No, you have to have an actual church, which makes Calvinists into troublemakers. In France, civil war breaks out and then um, goes to England, Scotland, Netherlands, Hungary, Poland. And I suggest that you read Martin Bootser's, uh, at least a little bit, of uh, the Regno Christi. He was the reformer of Strasbourg, and he wrote this for King Edward VI of England, how to run a church state. And the details are there in that little section that I suggested that you read. But he also helps to revise the Book of Common Prayer for the Church of England. <clears throat> and when uh, Queen Mary, the Catholic Queen Mary, ascends to the throne and tries to re-Catholicize England, uh, Booster's corpse is dug up and burned along with all his writings. The English Reformation is very complicated, but I think most of you know the whole history. It is run from the crown. And the crown, whoever is sitting on the throne, determines what that church is going to be. 
And it goes through all these different phases, enormously complex. Here you have all the different rulers and there you have um, the changes that they make back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, it's very messy, uh, but uh, it ends up being enormously influential in that it's their constant uh, tug of war between the Reformation from above, from the crown, and the people who resist that Reformation in one way or another. And um, all of that comes here to North America. And finally, the Radical Reformation, which I prefer to call the Alternative Reformation, Reformations, plural. Many different kinds of radical or alternative reformations. But these central beliefs link them. Church has fallen and disappeared. There is an unbridgeable chasm between Christians and the world. Christianity is voluntary and the church should be composed only of believers, no more church state, no, no more sort of universal baptism. Rejection of infant baptism as an earmark of compulsory fallen territorial churches. And oddly enough, belief in the freedom of the human will, none of this faith alone stuff, and in the role of human effort towards salvation. Their churches are small, their churches are persecuted, but they end up scattering uh, mostly to Central and Eastern Europe and the Netherlands. But then they differ on this issue of pacifism. Most of them are pacifists who believe in total non-resistance and turning the other cheek. And there's very little or no middle ground, or they become engaged in apocalyptic warfare like Thomas Münzer. And finally, this last slide, I'm gonna end here to leave time uh, for questions and discussions. But these are the different varieties of radical or alternative churches. And as you can see, uh, the, the, the diversity is bewildering. Um, and I'll just let you, you know, soak this up for 30 seconds and then we can move on to discussions. As you see, this fragmentation creates um, two very distinct sets of cultures. Or actually, if you take the, the radicals uh, as, as a group of, on their own, separate from the others, three very different cultures, Christian cultures, in what was once a single unified Christian culture. Professor, uh, well, well, first, thank you for, for your class. Uh, I'd like to, to ask you if you have a position or what you think about the concept of Baroque modernity that some scholars uh, for uh, Bernardino Bravo, for instance, in Chile, uses to refer for this uh, new mentality within Catholicism uh, that departs from from uh, Middle Ages, but it's not the 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 well the standard modernization uh, not, uh, that prevailed at, at last. What do you think about that? If you think it's a good uh, idea if you're acquainted with this. I, I know it's not uh, uh, mainstream, so 
if you had any thoughts, I'd appreciate yeah. it. Well, you. Um, you know, I call the 17th century the age with too many names. And Baroque is one of them, the Baroque age, which usually refers to culture more than anything else. I think that all of these Protestant churches, as well as the Catholic Church, they have different degrees of continuity and discontinuity with medieval Christianity. And it's, it's very troublesome, I, th I think, to apply uh, a, a single term or name to understand um, the whole mess. Uh, Baroque Catholicism and Baroque Lutheranism can look very similar. The music can be almost you know, identical, uh, but you look at other aspects and you see very, very large differences in the culture. And it depends on where you're looking and when you're looking. So um, I, you know, I use the term Baroque often, uh, but I use it to uh, refer to cultural issues and, and even aesthetic tastes. Hi, Professor. Thank you. Um, Hi. I'm wondering if you think that um, any of the internal Catholic reform movements, I'm thinking about Jansenism in particular, if they had any impact on the way that Protestant reformers um, were um, confronting the church, or if there was any interaction, you think, uh, of note between the, in, so to speak, internal Catholic reformers and the external? Well, there there is very little interaction in the sense that we would now call sort of ecumenical brotherhood. Right, But there is no denying the fact that there is one theological issue, especially in the 17th century, that bedevils all of the major church denominations, and that is the issue of free will, grace, predestination. And within the Catholic Church, Jansenism is often portrayed as some kind of, you know, proto-Protestantism. Um, but no, all the major denominations have to sort through this very thorny problem of what is the relationship between divine grace and the human will. And there are many internal reformers um, within Catholicism, as there are also internal reformers in the Protestant churches once they're established. Like, for instance, the movement of pietism and Lutheranism, right? So. You, you have similarities, but you also have great differences. What I find uh, somewhat um, significant in comparing, especially in the 17th century, Protestants and Catholics is precisely this issue of devotional literature and an effort to get the church members, the laity, to be better Christians in some way, in one way or another. And when it comes to behavior, to ethics, there you have immense similarities uh, because you've got, of course, the 10 commandments <laughs> and uh, everything else that's in the Bible that's, that's part of the Catholic and Protestant tradition when it comes to ethics, enormous similarities, uh, right? Uh, so yeah, it's it's complicated, but there are continuities and discontinuities. Depends on where you look. Professor, thank you so much for your talk. I have two questions. I'll ask them at the same time. So the first is, um, I was wondering if you could 
talk a little bit about how marriage within these um within these reformed branches of christianity mm -hmm. de develops as it becomes de-sacramentalized right if there are only two sacraments and marriage isn't one of them what role does marriage play and um in these branches and then second uh you mentioned nicodemism uh coming out of the calvinist tradition is that drawing from uh like machiavellian thought at all with this sort of um sort of separation between like reality and and seeming um so thank you so much yeah okay well let's take marriage first um there's been plenty of work done on this especially uh, by my mentor stephen osmond you know protestants make marriage preferable to celibacy because they argue that celibacy is unnatural so marriage is natural and uh, the family therefore uh, rises in significance and even for the clergy themselves i mean in many protestant cultures uh, an unmarried cleric is uh, looked at uh, with suspicion what's wrong with this man right so having a wife raising children's uh, luther is a great proponent of this so is calvin and zwingli is um, also very very much in favor of marriage but here's what happens it's not a sacrament, right? So you begin to see in Zurich, in Geneva, in Strasbourg, marriage courts. Actually in Geneva, the consistory handles marriage problems. And if, if people are reported as constantly fighting, a married couple is constantly fighting, they keep bring, bringing them to the consistory. And they basically come up with a three strike rule, which is after the third time, that's it, face it, you can't live together. And actually uh, it's Martin Bootser in Strasbourg who first institutes legal divorce. So by secularizing uh, marriage, the possibility of divorce uh, becomes no problem. And I guess the the main uh, example of this might be Henry VIII himself. Uh, but raising children in German Lutheran culture for women is the three Ks, Kinder, Küchen, and Kirche. Children, the kitchen, and the church. So in some ways in Catholicism, you have by having celibate women, nuns, who run their own lives without males over them, uh, immense difference in the 16th and 17th century between Protestant culture and Catholic culture, because in Catholic culture, you can have these women who um, are not attached to a man. And of course, feminists uh, have examined this. Nicodemism. Nicodemism, I think I have argued for many years, does not require a theory. Some Nicodemites might have read Machiavelli, but it, it's not a theory. It's a defensive reaction to persecution. You're being persecuted. Do you want to risk martyrdom or not? That's the basic question. That's why you have dissemblers uh, that are very similar. The Nicodemites, very similar to the Jewish conversos and the Muslim Moriscos in Spain, who for generations keep religion at home, hiding it. 
And then, you know, everyone was very surprised in the 19th century when Japan opened its doors to the West that there were still Christians in Japan who had secretly kept their religion at home. So Nicodemism, it, some people uh, like the Dutch radical reformer Dirk Kornherz, he develops a theology of dissembling. And his theology is that what God really cares about is what's spiritual, not what's material. So what you do with your body doesn't matter. It's what you do with your heart and mind and soul. So if you think Catholicism is an idolatrous uh, demonic religion and you still go to mass or you attend your, your nephew's baptism, that's fine. God doesn't care. What God cares about is what's, and, and it's all very theological and very nice, but you don't need to have this in mind in order to be a Nicodemite. You're just trying to protect yourself. Um, there's a book that came out, I think, in the early 80s by Paris Sagorin, Z-A-G-O-R-I-N, Ways of Lying. And he covers all of this, the different ways of lying, uh, including, you know, Machiavellian things for the 16th century, if this is a topic that, that interests you. Uh, thank you for the lecture. I was wondering, Given the Lutheran definition of the church as where the gospel is being preached and the sacrament be administered, it seems like theoretically there is a universal element. But in practice, I think we've seen in history that more and more churches were identified with the nation, however you define it as such. I'm wondering if these thinkers that you've examined in this period are reflecting on the role of the nation or the ethnicity or language, whatever group you can think of in the ecclesiology the church however they define it well it's by by definition when when these churches are established they're established with a certain um pattern of church state relations built in so for instance the reformed tradition which spreads very widely you know you've got international calvinism it's international yet you know it works differently in different places and here's a prime example of the way in which practice, the uh, way people actually live, uh, is not necessarily determined by the theology of ecclesiology in a church. In the Netherlands, here's what happens. Not only do they develop toleration, right? They develop toleration. You, could, you don't have to belong to the... Dutch Reformed Church. You don't have to belong. You don't have to attend it even. You can be a Catholic and attend church as long as you don't do it in a building that is I can be identified as a church. You can convert a house into a church and go in the back door, and that's fine. Jews can do the same thing. The Anabaptists can do the same thing. But here to me is the most interesting part of this whole deal. You can attend the Dutch Reformed Church, but not belong to it. And if you don't belong, if you're not a member, you cannot be tried by their disciplinary tribunals. <laughs> so this whole idea of you know, reforming society, making everyone conform, you've got a, a political entity, the United Provinces of the Netherlands, 
which is officially Calvinist, but it's very different from Geneva. Very, very different. So um, there are all sorts of theological um, treatises like Bootser's treatise, De Regno Christi, it's very clear about the way in which he thought the Church of England uh, should mix with the state to make sure that everybody was a good Christian. But actually Elizabeth doesn't put Bootser's theology into practice. Uh, she does some things, yes, but not, not all of them. So there's, a, again, variety. This is why, you know, I, I thought I'd show you that slide with all the, the chart with all the different churches, which is so bewildering, is that um, depends on where you are and who's in control. Um, only Scotland and parts of Switzerland had reformed churches that stuck to a very specific ecclesiological pattern. The Netherlands was also officially Calvinist reformed, but um, it, it went the toleration route uh, rather than the theocratic route. Thank you, Professor. I had a question bringing this a bit, um, kind of trying to apply some of what you've said into uh, modernity, I guess. Uh, I was really interested to hear yesterday, and you spoke a little bit more about it today, about how uh, it was more of a Protestant idea that um, uh, the civil government should be kind of facilitating this charitable action through taxes and, and using government as a means of taking care of the poor, uh, which was very contradictory to Catholic understanding of, you know, charity is how I do God's work and this is part of my salvation. Um, and government's overtaking that role of charity was kind of a threat to uh, how I would um, live out my salvation. Um, and I feel like this is a common topic today of what is the government's role, what isn't the government's role, what should taxes should and shouldn't be doing. Um, so is this a, you know, as Catholics kind of looking at how do we interact with our modern society? How do we um, use our own agency and our political um, uh, agency and participation to better ensure the well-being of those around us? Um, we could argue like the, the church does so many wonderful things, but does that um, exempt us from maybe and working towards more laws to um, ensure tax money is going maybe from other sources to sources more focused on uh, those in need? Right. Well, the, you know, the, the writing of the history on this issue is very odd because the literature what the scholars have done is they have um, worked either on the Protestant solution or the Catholic solution. Now, there's so many books on confraternities, it's very easy to get lost, um, especially confraternities in the early modern period and what they did. But there's very little comparative work comparing the, socially, the, the, the Catholic and Protestant solutions to poverty to poor relief, and that needs to be done. And for instance, there is no work that I have seen that compares the effectiveness of one model versus the other. 
But what, if you look at, at the history, you know, extending past the 16th and 17th century, and you, you look at the history of poor relief is that, you know, as Europe grows more secularized, of course, the state starts to take over these functions um, increasingly more and more and more and more. But in those countries that are Catholic, as well as those that are Protestant, the inefficiency of state poor relief is such that you begin to see among Catholics, it continues on the same path, right? Uh, lay involvement in charitable work. But you begin to see that too in, in Protestant uh, societies, you know, including here in the United States. Um, and um, it's just an admission that government cannot solve the problem, even in, in today, right? Today. And I speak, you know, from, from personal experience um, as a refugee. Who helped me? The churches did. Catholic Church helped me first. Uh, the church itself, uh, Archdiocese of Miami. But then when I moved to a Protestant uh, Midwestern location, Bloomington, Illinois, who helped me? The Presbyterians and the Methodists. <laughs> and this uh, Methodist lady who would drive us to the grocery store in her Volkswagen bus. <laughs> if it weren't for her, there's not gonna be any government official that was gonna come and take us to the grocery store. Uh, and, you know, this is just so apparent everywhere uh, in the West now, uh, even in, in, the, in the European nations that have, you know, much uh, larger budget for social services, you still see the churches involved. And by now, theology might have something to do with it, but um, I don't know. I'm trying to remember who told me this. There was somebody who ran some kind of shelter here in, in New Haven. Um, oh no, it was a food bank, not a shelter. Ran a food bank. And uh, she said, you know, if it weren't for the Catholic churches, I don't know what we'd be doing. Uh, and she singled out. There are a lot of Catholics in Connecticut, so maybe that has something to do with it. But uh, it's, it's a curious thing. I would love for someone to do a comparative history, you know, 16th and 17th century poor relief, Catholic and Protestant, and actually crunch numbers and do the kind of work I can't do um, about the efficiency uh, of these systems.